0: We hate this bill. We are local government people. We believe in local control. We believe that local communities ought to be in charge of their own destiny.
1: Welcome to episode 415 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Just Delfiaco, communications manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today Christopher talks with Ken Fellman and Jeff Wilson. They discuss how Quest, now called CenturyLink, used their influence to get a bill that limits municipal networks adopted in Colorado. At the time, Ken and Jeff did what they could to change the bill to make it less restrictive. They helped to remove the limitations that would have stopped all municipal networks like what we saw happen in North Carolina. Ken and Jeff also tell Christopher about what has happened in the state since then and how changes over time have resulted in the bill being less harmful than it was in the early years. Now here's Christopher talking with Ken Fellman and Jeff Wilson.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which is located in Minneapolis, as well as several other cities. I'm coming to you from St. Paul, Minnesota today. And I'm going to speak uh, with Ken Fellman, um, a partner with the Denver law firm Kissinger & Fellman. Uh, Ken's been representing local government in Colorado and throughout the country for over 35 years. Uh, Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. And I'm also welcoming Jeff Wilson, who is a special counsel at Murray, Dahl, Beery, and Renault, uh, and who has worked at the Colorado Municipal League on these issues, where he was the general counsel. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
3: Thank you. Pleased to be here.
2: And I feel like we should also just plug Natoa while we're at it, the National Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors. I'm sure we've all been to their events, contributed, and helped them out as they've uh, led on a lot of these issues over the years.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning NATOA. Uh, Chris, I know we're going to talk about the Colorado experience and at the time that was happening, I was, um, on the board at NATOA. So, um, I know that, um, NATOA was focused not just on Colorado, but on these issues all around the country.
2: So I want to talk today with you two, because you were both around in the heat of it when Colorado decided to try to discourage municipal broadband networks. We're going to talk about what that was like, uh, how that law got passed, and and what's happened since then. And maybe we could even make an argument that although it discouraged municipal networks in the short term, it may have even encouraged them over the longer term. Uh, classic backfire kind of issue. So, uh, But let me, let me dive in. And I'll point at you first, Ken. And uh, tell me what it was like in Colorado prior to 2005 when this uh, bill was pushed through.
0: At that point, we were, um, you know, if you think back to 2005, so uh, everybody had email, internet was still slow and starting to get faster. We had cable modems. But there wasn't a lot in Colorado of uh, municipal networks. Um, City of Cortez in southwest Colorado Uh, had their own fiber network, and uh, there was work being done, I believe, at that time with the Council of Governments uh, in Southwest Colorado, the uh, regional organization to, uh, starting with Cortez, use that backbone for a a, a regional broadband network. Um, Frankly, we weren't even using the term broadband much back in 2005. (laughs) Um, And the... um, Let's see, the city of Glenwood Springs, also on the west slope of Colorado, had a telecommunications network and uh, actually was providing service in in some parts of the city. Other than that, there there may have been um, others that were in place um, in a few other communities like Longmont that were looking at how to leverage their their fiber assets uh, through a public-private partnership to provide better service and competition in their community. Um, But other than that, there was not a lot going on on the
2: municipal level. And Jeff, what are your recollections?
3: Pretty much the same as Ken. I remember um, when the legislation was first introduced, it served um, really as a consciousness raiser for us at the league. As Ken said, there wasn't so much focus on Wi-Fi and such at the local level at that time. And it was clearly, I mean, it was unmistakably an assault on our authority to be creative in the provision of this service to our citizens. And as I recall, there were, even though, as Ken was saying, things were in their earlier stages, it wasn't too early for people to begin to realize that they were not getting the kind of service that they wanted. Uh, yeah, particularly in rural areas,
2: I think that may have even predated the first of several efforts to use public money to help CenturyLink or other providers provide access all around the state <laughs> um, you know as we as we deal with this question about the state. Um, discouraging municipal networks it's worth noting that that um the state and the federal government long have put money into these big private networks um and that um is sometimes forgotten but um one of the other things that i think was true about that time is that it was shortly after nixon v missouri which um was it, um in 2004 i believe which decided that cities Um, they are not covered by Section 253 of the Telecommunications Act, uh, which in short basically says that anyone can offer internet service and states can't get in the way. And the Supreme Court said, actually, states can get in the way of municipal networks. Um, We're going to have a future interview with John Chambers, who helped to write that part, and he'll talk about how they never anticipated that anyone could mistake the fact that, that when they used the word any, they meant... Any and that they did intend, intend to preempt states on this issue. So, um, we'll have more coverage on this, um, um, uh, in the future. But, um, I, I guess in, in Colorado, this is, um, this bill is SB 152, right? I always confuse it's SB or HB, SB. SB, SB Senate bill, Senate bill. And, um, but it's more colloquially known as the Quest bill, right? Um, the Quest law, maybe. Um, what was, what was the nature of, of Quest's involvement with this?
3: Their lobbyists, together with Comcast, were the, the driving force for this bill at the Capitol. They have considerable influence. They were very liberal campaign contributors, a considerable amount of influence in both parties. Uh, and there was no particular effort to, to hide the bill. We didn't have multiple incarnations of the bill being developed in, in smoke-filled rooms. They just came out and dropped the bill, and there it was, and it was ours to deal with. The first argument was that it, it was this level playing field argument that they use every place, uh, that, that government, we in government enjoyed considerable advantages over the private sector. And then the second argument, and this, I'm always skeptical when, uh, telecommunications companies, uh, pretend to be consumer groups, uh, but they, they would say that the legislation is necessary to protect folks in local governments from irresponsible local governments, which is just, you know, it was an amazing argument, but the, those are the two uh, ways in which they sought to make their case.
2: I, Ken, I'm curious if you uh, remember the first time you saw the bill and sort of a, a reaction to it. <laughs>
0: we did go back and look at some of our our yes. files um, uh, before we're talking to you today, uh, Chris, and it's funny how the um, sucker punch feeling comes back when you look at that, uh, that stuff. The bill, um, I know we'll get into this. Uh, the bill we ended up with um, was a lot better. Um, and as you said, you know, resulted in probably some things the industry uh, was not hoping for when they uh, presented it. But as introduced, it was, uh, it was just a tremendous um, overreach into local authority. And and Jeff mentioned the um, argument that we need to level the playing field and make sure governments on the same Playing field. It had so many restrictions on uh, government networks that uh, not only did it not level an unlevel playing field, it created an incredibly tilted playing field yes. that that would have made it really next to impossible for local governments to be successful, and therefore would keep them from ever getting into uh, the uh, broadband or telecommunications businesses. Something that we sometimes in local government called it's denial by approval. They're going to approve this bill, but impose so many ridiculous conditions on it that it'll have the effect of denying any local government the actual ability to build a network and participate in providing competitive service.
2: That's actually similar to language that we've used in talking about North Carolina's restrictions, which is to say, oh, no, you can you can absolutely build a municipal network. All you have to do is bring me a leprechaun riding on a unicorn and then you can go right ahead and build it. No problem.
0: Right, right. Don't forget the uh, delivery of your firstborn child as well. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, there were just to give you some specific examples uh, absolutely no cross subsidies were, was one of the conditions. So while you had telecommunications companies that were lobbying and successfully lobbying to get deregulated, and that was right around the time that we were starting to see convergence. So we we're starting to see cable companies provide internet service and telephone companies provide internet and cable service. And Uh, There was very little restrictions on those companies unless they were one of the traditional um, regulated provider of last resort voice services. Uh, There were no restrictions on being able to take revenues from one part of their business and
2: put it into development of another. part. But they wanted to restrict local governments from doing that. I just want to I want to stick on cross subsidies for a second, because I feel like in some sense there is a number of states that limit cross subsidies. In some sense, what i 'm trying to say is that um, we don 't want to encourage cross subsidies. The challenge is that when you define cross subsidies, it can mean lots of different things like like I think we want we want to make sure that any sort of transfers would be transparent um, and open but the um, one of the challenges is like for instance, in a, the accounting gets really complicated, so if you have Longmont and they already have a truck. Um, do they have to build? Do they have to buy a whole new truck, you know, to do the same thing for a different utility, or are they allowed to account for that using long a- adopted ca- accounting standards? Is what I'm trying to say. And so I just want to—I think that's—I don't—I want to—I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I also just want to make sure people have a sense of of that. We can say we don't want to cross subsidize, but when you put it into law, it gets very complicated as to what that means. Well, it does get complicated, and and uh, to your point.
0: Uh, Cross-subsidization is not always a great idea. Um, the issue for us, and um, I, I'm sure Jeff uh, remembers as well, it, it wasn't that we were promoting the ability to cross-subsidize. We were saying, these are local decisions. Mm-hmm. What, uh, most communities may decide we don't want to cross-subsidize. We're going to create an enterprise fund, and we're only going to use the revenues from that fund to run the, this operation. Um, but there has to be some way to start up and seed money. And if a particular city or a county or a town said in our community, it's so important to get this service, um, we are going to take some of the money from these other funds and help provide the foundation to get this operation going, shouldn't that be a local decision? What works in Denver is not necessarily going to work in Montrose. And we were there fighting for local control, not promoting cross subsidies. It was just an area that the legislature should not have stepped into.
3: Yeah. And in distinction, in distinction of the cross-subsidization that routinely occurs in the private sector, if if cross-subsidization does occur, and I agree, it's not always the answer. uh, When it's done by us in government, it's done by the people's elected representatives, and it is done transparently. When cross-subsidization is done in the private sector, nobody knows what's going on. If we cross-subsidize, it's in our public budget documents. So it's it right out there in the light of day. And if the decisions of our elected officials are unpopular or don't serve the public interest, they pay a price at election. Uh, again, a distinction between, um, uh, between the private sector and the public. Um, as Ken says, a lot of this argument was about um, level playing field, but it was hardly a level playing field. There was no discussion by the uh, proponents, for example, of operating under the open meetings laws mm-hmm. or the public... F- public finance acts or the public deposit protection act or the taxpayers bill of rights here in Colorado, where revenue raising has to be preceded by a plebiscite, none of those things. So the level playing field argument was as much of a joke as was the, we need to protect uh, local government citizens from their rampant local governments. Is another premise of the bill.
2: I, I appreciate that. I want to have a, a, just a quick, fuller discussion about that. Um, and I would say further, as we look at how to make sure everyone has an internet connection, um, cross subsidies may be required to make sure that the lowest income families are able to be connected in states like Tennessee and Iowa that try to again um, stick their nose in those local business models um, just make it harder to develop models that will make sure everyone 's connected um, and Yes, I also wanted to say like the level playing field is is just it 's atrocious. The um one of the things I always think about is I want to see, you know, uh I want to see Comcast or, or CenturyLink forced to forego volume discounts from vendors. Um, you know, they can only <laughs> buy things in increments yeah. um of this town in which they are serving <laughs> because um you know you certainly pay a lot less per unit when you buy a million of them than if you buy mm-hmm. ten thousand of them. Um and so there's all, there's so many different ways in which they have advantages and they try to take away a few things that that often aren't even necessarily advantages of the public. Um, so Ken, what's the second item that you wanted to, that you were adding on in terms of what the legislation would have done?
0: To the level playing field uh, issues, and Jeff, uh, Jeff alluded to them, um, it wasn't just uh, we need to impose these new obligations on local government. We were there lobbying at the General Assembly saying, these folks are private companies. Um, the public doesn't get to come to their board meetings. When they set their rates, we don't have public hearings and and they don't have input into it. Um, There's no opportunity for a citizen to file a records request and ask Quest or ask Comcast how you are paying for this service or how many people you have employed serving this community versus that community. Those were all obligations that the local government had. So part of our argument was, you want a level playing field? let's make it really level. Why don't you guys all these other things, which of course they they never would do. And it was really crazy to even suggest that they would do, but it just pointed out how ridiculous the level playing field argument was.
3: You know, another example is right in there with the cross-subsidization prohibition. Um, Even though in Colorado, debt cannot be issued by government, bonded debt cannot be issued until approved by the voters. The proponents put in this bill that if we want to issue debt for building telecommunications infrastructure, we can discharge, we can only pay those bonds off with proceeds from the telecommunications project itself, which, as you know, when a project is starting out, it doesn't generate a lot of revenue. How are you supposed to pay the bonds? It was a species of the cross subsidization prohibition, but it was especially pernicious because it, in government, we operate on a pay as you go a way of running things a lot of the time we don't have a big pile of cash sitting around Uh, and so debt financing was at the time something we we had to seriously consider things you know things work out a little bit differently down the road and we'll get to that but at the time the, the it was clear what the intent of this legislature was and it was like as ken said it was to prohibit it by allowing it
0: one of the other things that was originally in the bill was that uh, local governments would have to demonstrate through their financial modeling that the project would cash flow within a year or at the end of a year. One year, Um, a whole 365 days. Right. So when you think about level playing field, right, how many startup (laughs) private sector companies, whether they're funded by a bank or investment banking firms, how many of those actually cash flow within 12 months? Right. None. So so to impose that on local government, it was just another one of those things that that, um, you know, was going to make it impossible for local governments to get involved. And we made we we made those points um, during the uh, lobbying on the bill. And, you know, eventually uh, we could talk a little bit about the strategy and how we got it. But eventually those started getting pulled out of the bill. There was also uh, one of the other arguments from the. uh, legislature was, of course, the always um, conservative. The government shouldn't be competing with the private sector. We should have state legislation that just prohibits competition with the private sector. So one of the things we did was point out that, you know, there are a lot of other areas where local government actually is in the same business that private sector entities are in. So we've got rec, public rec centers. We also have private gyms. We have public golf courses. We also have country clubs. And there are a number of examples. Crash hauling. Like, right. Try, why, why isn't the legislature, if the legislature really believes that local government shouldn't compete with the private sector, why just in
2: telecommunications? Can you imagine if, if local governments were just letting people read books for free without
0: charging them? There was, <laughs> <Yeah. on mines. laughs> Where will that end? <laughs> right,
3: right.
2: So,
0: um, I mean, we, we, had some, we had some good arguments uh, to push back on. We also... Um, had no examples of anywhere in the state uh, where there was a problem. Um, Chris, you probably remember at the time there were uh, some other municipal broadband Wi-Fi problems or projects,
2: in other states that some had been successful, but a number of them had not been successful. And this is one of the things I find fascinating. That's the time in which Cedar Falls was represented as being a failure. Um, You know, a lot of the networks that today, it's very clear that they have this long running track record, but no one knew at the time how successful they were because we weren't as well connected. Mm -hmm. And so Cedar Falls was doing just fine on their business model. They've gone on to be one of the most successful networks but if you probably were listening to the Colorado legislature, you would have thought it was a failure at the time.
0: Right. And and that there were only failures. I mean, it was, right. uh, you know, it was interesting how when the industry told their story of why this was a bad thing and all these projects that were, you know, going down the tubes, um, and then we'd come in and, you know, either try to argue Cedar Falls or Lafayette or Bristol or, you know, the other, I, I don't remember if they were all in place by then, but. Uh, the other ones that we're working and we're working effectively. And um, again, like any other private business, some of them are successful, some of them don't work out.
2: Yes, this is and this was the time of Wi-Fi bubble. Um, people were very enthusiastic about the so called third pipe. Uh, there was a sense the vendors had, had at this point I think we're still overhyping the technology. And so we were seeing um, I don't even think we were yet starting to see the business models fail. That would later be um, visited on and blamed on local governments, but we saw local governments and private companies alike try to build these Wi-Fi networks and and those networks often did not work out the way expected because of the vendor equipment not living up to spec and because of some a lot of hype around it. But that was a business model that failed whether it was public or private for the most part. It really had nothing to do with whether it was publicly owned or privately owned. Yep. That's right. So you have a, you have a bill that comes out and um, and so you start educating people on it. What are some of the milestones along the way that, that you remember?
3: We were confronted with this thing and Ken and I took a look at the political uh, lay of the land and it looked, this thing was going to pass. I mean, uh, we quickly realized that the just kill it strategy wasn't going to be the what happened. Um, The the proponents had been very clever in the way they had selected their sponsors. They selected um, Democrats as the lead sponsors, which is clever because they could always count on every Republican supporting them. Where they needed help was on the Democratic side of the aisle. So first they start with selecting Democratic sponsors. The the big milestone, and I think our way out of the wilderness, was among everything else in the bill, the bill required... A Byzantine series of public hearings and notice to the public and notice to the other providers and all of these hoops we had to jump through. Then there was a requirement for a public election on whether the government would be permitted to be involved in the provision of broadband service. And then the bill proposed that notwithstanding public approval, there would be all these other restrictions like the discharge of debt only through revenue and so forth. At some point fell upon the idea that here in America, uh, the voters get to approve local projects and local initiatives, even if the scope and form of those projects is not what the utilities would support. And we started to make headway with legislators by arguing that Shouldn't we just be able to go to an election? And if we don't make our case well, then we will lose at the ballot box. And if we make our case with the voters, then the voters will approve the project. And shouldn't we be able to proceed if that's what the voters want to do? It was a hard argument for the other side to attack. So we made some headway with the other side on that argument. And that opened the door to getting rid of this other junk in the bill because the voters could decide whether if the voters wanted to limit the discharge of a debt to revenues from the project alone, the voters could so provide. If the voters wanted to prohibit cross subsidization, that could be part of the issue locally. It did not have to be mandated by the legislature. It was better determined by the voters. And this put the industry in the position of arguing that the general assembly knows better than the voters or that they in industry know better than the voters. And at that point, uh, we started to have some leverage, and I, and fairly early on got the got that agreement. The main amendments that took a lot of this big junk that Ken and I have been talking about out of the bill came in the Senate committee, the first committee of reference in the process, and all this this cross subsidization stuff came out, and the debt restrictions came out, and we got rid of, of a whole lot of various stuff in the attendant definitions. And the bill at that point uh, was a, you got to have an election to do this. And then there were some other exceptions that became the focus of further discussion as the bill went through the process. For example, a, an exception that provided that in unserved areas, which is a subject of definition, in unserved areas, the bill didn't apply and the government could provide service provided we would jump through a whole bunch of hoops. And uh, among them was a right of first refusal for any incumbent provider that wanted to come in and provide the service. I, I don't know how you could have an incumbent provider in an unserved area, but that was that's the way the bill was written.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. visit a lot of CenturyLink territory. But um, just to – I know Ken will jump in in a second. I wanted to also note the – one of the, the parts of it that um, oh that I found interesting is um, we have seen this in practice, what you're saying. Uh, Centennial decided to move forward with an authorization in which they chose to only be able to offer services indirectly. And that's what the city decided to put in front of the voters. The voters approved that. And so they have you know limited themselves in ways they didn't necessarily have to. Um, Ken, go ahead. Yeah. As I was gonna say, what we were left with with the bill and what we were not able to get changed
0: were some... Uh, incredibly stupid definitions. And I I wanted to ask you about those. (laughs) Some of
2: the worst that we've seen. uh, It it basically
0: prohibited uh, the provision of cable and telecommunications and advanced service. It defined that, I mean, back at the time we were looking at, um, uh, boy, I don't even remember what the speeds were, 256K maybe, um, very slow. But it also said the provision of service was prohibited. Uh, you couldn't provide it directly or indirectly. And it defined indirectly as utilizing any government resources, even with private sector companies, even where the government was not actually going to be the service provider. So leasing dark fiber at, at the, the way it was first written, we got an exception put in, but even like leasing space on the water tank for antennas would have been prohibited without a vote. We got that. Thankfully it was taken out Um, So you couldn't provide service indirectly to subscribers. Now, if you ask the average person on the street, how would you define a subscriber to a service? Uh, You'd get an answer something like somebody who signs up and pays for the service that they're using. Absolutely.
2: Write a check. They
0: they define subscriber in this bill as anyone who used the service with permission. You don't (laughs) have to sign up. You don't have to pay. It's just that there's there's an advanced service. There's anything over 256K out there. um, And if you are using it with permission, then you are a subscriber and the government cannot be involved in providing that service. So if you fast forward just a few years, within five years after that bill was passed, you had free Wi-Fi at the library. You had free Wi-Fi at town hall. Some communities had free Wi-Fi in the park or in the rec center. Um, every one of those communities was violating the statute. And it, it was. An, and the industry at first would say, oh, no, no, that's not a violation. And then you would show them the language and they would kind of admit, well, yeah, it is. The bill was written, even, even that it, the way it ended up or we could live with it, it was still so broad in some, some areas that it had these unintended consequences. And, you know, I would get, and, and Jeff would periodically get calls at the league and his position as general counsel for the league, He's not giving legal advice to individual municipalities. So you know, he has those people call me and then they ask, yeah. you know, is, it, is it illegal? For, you know, can we do free Wi-Fi at the library? And after a while, my, my advice to, to local governments was technically you are violating the law here. Now, the good thing was there's no penalty if you violate. If somebody were to challenge you and you go to court, the remedy was stop doing it until you have an election, and your citizens say it's okay. And the industry realized that the bill was overbroad as passed. And, you know, a lot of my advice, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, was you're probably not going to get challenged on this. All these cities are already doing it. So if you start doing it, you know, there's no really good bet that they're going to pick on you as opposed to any of the cities who've been doing it. But at the end of the day, neither Comcast nor Quest um, which eventually became CenturyLink or any of these other companies want the headline in the Denver Post to be, you know, Comcast ends free Wi-Fi at the library. It, it was politically untenable. So uh, it ended up we had these crazy definitions um, that technically a lot of what was going on was illegal, but it was happening and nobody was going to challenge it. And everybody just realized yeah, the, the bill's crazy on, on that point. But the public private partnership was problematic because you started seeing over the years um, after that local governments that had fiber infrastructure or even empty conduit that they could have used to incent broadband deployment and they needed to go to a vote before they could do that. So we, I don't know, there may be some more things Jeff wants to say about the bill and how it got passed, but you know, we can also move on to sort of what happened once we had this thing, in
3: know, I don't, a I day. don't have anything more on the bill. I th- I think that was a good segue into that excess capacity issue. You know, where we have to have an election to allow use of five, of open conduit that's already in the ground. I mean, that is silly. It's ridiculous. Yet we had to do it. Still have to do it. <laughs>
2: Right. Well, and, and as we fast forward to after the, the bill is implemented, we don't see anyone really um, attempting to have that referendum for a while. I think uh, people were intimidated by it, uh, but eventually Longmont decides to move forward and to try it. And uh, it's 2009. I don't know. Um, Ken, do you want to just weigh in a little bit with with uh, what, what led up to this?
0: Sure. I, I wasn't directly involved with those issues at the time, but from what I recall, you know, Longmont is very fortunate. They have a municipal electric utility. Um, they had a bunch of fiber assets uh, through a consortium of local governments that they are involved with, called the Platte River Power Authority, and um, they had the opportunity to um, leverage those assets in a way that it would bring good service and competitive service uh, to their community. And uh, they're uh, they were a growing community, still are very you know highly educated. And they decided to go forward at first with a private sector partner and not to get into the details of that particular activity but it didn't um, go well because the private sector partner went under and wasn't able to perform. And I know that Longmont went out and tried to find somebody else to come in and um, how can you use our network and we will help you leverage a competitive product um, against the incumbents that we have currently in the area. Um, they couldn't find anybody, so they decided maybe we'll do it ourselves. And they went to the voters in 2009, and what they found was um, we have these um, organizations uh, during elections that we call um, AstroTurf organizations, which is the opposite of grassroots. AstroTurf <laughs> is fake grass, and uh, the AstroTurf organizations are basically uh, these entities that you know have these real cute names like Citizens for Better Broadband. Um, but they're actually funded by the industry.
2: Right. Usually the cable association of the state. So even individual cable companies have plausible deniability. Uh, so, you know, you might have I assume the way it works is that you have, may have Comcast giving an exceptionally large amount to the trade association. The trade association turns around and hires a public relations firm, but everything is credited right. to the state association and not to the individual provider that's trying to shape public opinion. Yeah.
0: And and I don't remember exactly how it I I think that's definitely true more today than it was 15 years ago. I I seem to remember at the time that um, this the opposition group through this AstroTurf organization put in three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, which which was a huge investment on a local ballot issue in a city of Longmont was probably 70,000 people at the
2: time. Mm Um, Yeah. I think actually in 2009, I think it was on the order of 250,000 and it broke previous records. And then, um, the fracking set a new record, but I think they broke it again afterwards when Longmont went back to ballot because, you know, spoiler alert, Longmont voted no the first time around. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, yeah. Well, and the second time around was before the fracking stuff started. They may have broken the record in Fort Collins a couple of years ago. Sure. Um, Yeah. in any event, what what happened in Longmont was the election lost. And, you know, this was another pitch that, that uh, I'll just take a step back that Jeff and I and some of our colleagues made during the legislative debates was under state law, local governments can't spend any public money on elections, which means not only do we have to have the citizens approve it, we got to find some people out there who will run a campaign who want this because the government can't fund that.
3: So I have uh, mentioned that earlier. That was... I think that was central to the deal happening at the Capitol that favored the election as the way to determine all this stuff, is that in the election, we wouldn't have a level playing field there either. We can't be advocates in our own elections, as Ken says. We have to have the Chamber of Commerce or a citizen group or somebody else carrying the ball. And uh, the industry perfectly well understood that.
0: Right. So um, in Longmont in 2009, um, they lost. Um, they had an, a, a group that was promoting the election. And as you said, 250,000 or 300,000, I'm not sure what the exact number was, but a lot of money was spent on this. And um, uh, it was not widely known in the community um, who was behind this AstroTurf organization. After the election, it became known. And my recollection is a lot of people in the community were pretty upset about it um, when they found out that the opponents were actually uh, their incumbent cable company and their incumbent telephone company and their state associations who were trying to limit competition.
2: Yeah, if I recall correctly, I don't remember if it was the first or the second election, but there was actually actors paid to dress as firefighters with signs suggesting that if money was spent on broadband, the firefighters would be laid off or, or somehow um, um, would be disadvantaged.
0: Yeah, I think that was the second election um, uh, because more money was put into the second election. Uh, I think the community in Longmont, and and by the community, I mean uh, both the city government, as well as people in the community who uh, realized they were snookered in the 2009 election, um, came back again. I think it was 2011. I think it was only two years. Um, That's correct. And they, um, and they fought harder this time. There was a, another three or $400,000 that was uh, put into it. They were, they were, they were doing commercials on local television and the If you think about election time in November um, and all the political ads that you see, you didn't see political ads most of the time for a state Senate district or a state House district. And here we have a city ballot issue where Denver TV is showing commercials um, uh, against uh, this proposition. Um, But the second time, Longmont voters said yes, and uh, they went forward and They actually came back a couple years later because the first ballot was simply to say, can we do this? And if you say yes, voters, we will study the issue. We will look at how it has to be funded. We will come up with a plan for funding it. And we'll come back to you for another election to get your approval on how we do that, which is exactly what happened in Longmont over the next few years. And then if we were to fast forward to today, uh, we've got what has been recognized in in some places as the best municipal broadband network in the country,
2: yeah, consistently top ten of speeds, right, right, One thing I did want to note about the second election was that it was it was fascinating uh, i think I think you're right, I think it was on the order of between four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars that was spent to oppose it and They couldn't find anyone locally. And I think this was true of both elections. There was no one locally that represented the campaign because, and I know this is true in the second time around, um, every single person on the ballot, whether it was for mayor, city council, dog catcher, whatever, they all supported it. There was no opposition in the community. I mean, usually the, these activist groups can, I mean, the, the, the AstroTurf groups that you mentioned, they can find someone that will carry the torch for them. But in Longmont, they couldn't. And so you had the newspaper supporting it there was not a a sort of local true community opposition at all and so it was entirely manufactured from Denver Yeah yeah that 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 was the case and and after
0: after Longmont passed it other communities started looking at it and and frankly they were nervous at first are we going to face that kind of money to fight this in our community but um, a, a few communities did go forward and uh, and adopt this. Um, Montrose, Colorado was one of, I believe, the earlier ones. You know, for your listeners who aren't familiar with some of our communities, Montrose is on the western slope. It's a small city. And, you know, I used to tell people shortly after that, if, if you were to walk down the street in Montrose and interview 100 people and ask them, should the government compete with the private sector? The answer would not only be no, it would be hell no, 100 (laughs) people. right? And yet, when the question was, should our city have the authority to invest money to improve our telecommunications infrastructure and the services we get? The answer was an overwhelming yes. It was over 70%, as I recall, um, that approved it. And that, now the industry did not, come in and fight in Montrose. Um, There's a lot of speculation about why that is. And and my speculation is in the smaller communities, it wasn't worth the investment. They had a network. Sometimes they got upgraded. Sometimes they didn't get upgraded. Uh, They certainly weren't on the priority list as some of the bigger networks in the more dense communities. And they just didn't fight it. And that then led to a bunch of additional small communities say, well, maybe we should adopt uh, a ballot issue, as you you mentioned uh, earlier that Centennial went forward. they decided as a policy reason um, we never are going to provide service we'll do a public private partnership, and that's all we're going to ask the voters for authority to do. We're not going to have a blanket authority for the city to do anything, including the provision of service. may or may not be a a good um, a good answer in other communities, but that was that was the policy decision that Centennial wanted to make. And if you're a local government advocate, as Jeff and I are, it's not for us to say what the right answer in Centennial or any other community is. The right answer is whatever their elected officials and their community decide. Um, So Centennial was a great example of local control and local decision making. Other communities did broader uh, exemptions and said, may we have the authority uh, basically that we had before 2005. Um, to make decisions about whichever way we want to go is best. And uh, many of the citizens said yes. And it started happening in these small, rural, mostly politically conservative uh, communities. Um, Another one uh, that I've had the privilege of doing some work with is Ray Colorado out on the Eastern Plains. They had a fiber network or put in a fiber network and they ended up doing a public private partnership with their uh, local rural telco and it's been very successful. Uh, so uh, it's, that's, there's another community that if you would have said, <laughs> should, we, should we start doing work uh, in competition with the private sector? The community probably would have said no, but when it comes to, do you want better broadband? Absolutely, we need, we need to incent that. And, and of course it follows the pos- position that we made to the state and in other places. Um, if you really support closing the digital divide we ought to encourage any entity that wants to build a broadband network to build right, a broadband right. network. And we shouldn't care whether it's the biggest cable company in the country or a local government of a town of four hundred and fifty people. We shouldn't
2: care. Well, let me ask you let me ask you a question related to that. Um, because Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> was that a was that a hiccup on the telecommunications side? Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> so for for listeners, Jeff disappeared, and Ken and I carried on. <laughs> but um, apparently, uh, uh, I mean, it's 2020, and frankly, the fact that we still have to deal with this—I mean, I—it's I, I, every tenth or fifteenth um, interview that I do, I have some sort of problem where we have to pause the interview and deal with it. So, I,
3: as I was frantically trying to reconnect, I was thinking of the irony of all
2: this. (laughs) Ken, one of the things that we hear is, is, is that the level playing field is needed because, um, the amount of taxpayer dollars that are available is infinite and therefore they could drive any provider out of business by just running an operation that loses money year after year and subsidizes it with taxpayer dollars. Um, now, there's no actual evidence of this happening anywhere. This is entirely a theoretical exercise. And so as such, I'm curious, you know, how do you think people would react to um, a, a mayor that says, hey, I'm going to I want to be reelected this year. And yes, I'm going to pledge to raise your taxes so that we can try to run this business out of town. Uh, that's a,
0: that's a, a an amusing question, because uh, you're right. It was an issue that would come up from time to time. And it's an absolutely theoretical issue. No evidence that it's happening anywhere. Aside from my law practice, I was a mayor at the time that this bill was passed. (laughs) I was a mayor of a a city that, you know, at the time was uh, probably about 85 or 90,000 people. And uh, one, we could never say I'm running on a platform to raise your taxes because uh, city councils don't have the authority to raise taxes here that under our, our taxpayer bill of rights in Colorado, only the voters can do that. So, it made the argument even more ludicrous here because um, one, it just, you know, no one is going to get up and say, I don't care if we're taking money away from hiring uh, more public safety officials. I don't care if we're taking money away from snow plows. I don't care if we're taking money away from park maintenance. We need to run this other company out of town, Uh, especially because once you started to see some of these networks be successful, what happened was. In Longmont, for example, um, it wasn't that they spent a bunch of money to try to get rid of the other guys. What the other guys started doing is lowering their prices and actually hiring workers to go door to door and knock on doors and say, have I got a deal for you? And they would (laughs) undercut the market and offer prices that were um, anti-competitive. And I, I know of one community that actually um, it wasn't one of my clients and it wasn't in Colorado, but it, it went to the Justice Department and, and said, we think there are antitrust violations here. And the Justice Department said, uh, yeah, probably there are. But, you know, we have so many cases that this doesn't rise to the level of a case we would take. And the way that that community addressed the problem eventually was to send a note out to all of its residents and say, look, we are your local broadband company. And. Look at the price that they're offering, which is admittedly five bucks less than what we are, but look at how, what they offer that at in your neighbor community here, same service and it's 35 or 40 or 50 bucks higher. Their goal is to put us out of business. And if we go out of business, do you think you're still going to get this price they're offering you now, or are you going to get the price raised to what it is next door to our community? And, And in that community where that happened, it stopped the bleeding of losing customers. So uh, I, I think I think this argument that local governments would try to put the incumbents out of business um, was not just a false argument, but in fact, it was the incumbents in some places that tried to put the local government networks out of business. And I,
3: and, and I have to interpose, and through what device? Through cross-subsidization. You know, the reason they could offer that five bucks below Longmont and while they're charging 40 bucks more outside of town is because they were cross-subsidizing lower rates for market advantage. You know, another example why, you know, the 152 uh, does nothing to advance the level playing field.
2: As we go to wrap up, um, I think it's worth just talking about the, the overall dynamic then. Colorado has had well over 100 local jurisdictions that have opted out of the law. In some ways, that makes it seem like there's this massive movement for community broadband in Colorado. Um, it's hard to tell exactly because some of those are multiple jurisdictions within a single county. And if you look at all the counties that opted out and now Delta Montrose Electric Association, for instance, building out, of course, they're not going to do anything without authorization now because the co-op is doing things. So there's a lot of good things that are happening. But I'm curious, like, what is the honest evidence that um, over time, because this is structured as an opt-out at the beginning of the process, it seems like it offered an opportunity for people to feel that opting out in and of itself was a statement um, and and led to more communities doing it?
3: I think that's right. I think that that, uh, Ken and I were talking about this the other day, that the evolution in thinking about Senate Bill 152 from something we wanted to beat our heads against down at the state legislature, to something we could work around through the election opt-out device. And these elections ended up being a, as you suggest, a a statement on the quality of service people were presently enduring in the community. So it was a protest vote. It also served in uh, something I didn't foresee. The election itself was a, a consciousness raising device in the communities. It sought to, channel and focus the discontent with local broadband service and and sensitize folks that this is something where your government can play a role or, you know, we can help. And in, in the later days, mostly through private-public partnerships. the uh, These questions pass in these elections too, as you may know, 80, 90%.
2: I think of them as Saddam Hussein numbers. they're, they're It's wild. I mean, it, you don't see anything else passing with that level of popularity. And the fact that it happens in Boulder and then it happens in Montrose, or I mean, areas that that I'm guessing um, Corey Gardner carried with yeah. um, with an eighty percent vote. I mean, mm-hmm. very Republican areas. Uh, it's it's across the whole state. So sorry, I, 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 I no no, that's right.
3: Sure. Somebody commented you could put a ballot question about whether you support mom on the ballot, and it would get a <laughs> lower turnout. <laughs>
0: So, you know, uh, the other the other thing that sort of played into this um, that Jeff and I were talking about the other day, um, for, for a few years after uh, the bill passed, we looked at ways to amend it. You know, I've mentioned the definitions right. that were terrible and, you know, can we get rid of the vote for the public-private partnership? And we would try to uh, see if we could pick off a couple of Republican legislators from the rural communities because this really would benefit the rural communities. And they would all say great things about it and then vote. Uh, no, to kill the amendment. So after a few years of beating our heads against the wall at the legislature, and, and clearly Jeff and his role at the municipal league had many, many other areas to be involved in in legislative lobbying beyond broadband. And we started seeing all these communities pass it. The league made a decision, which was uh, exceptional. Which we're not going to the legislature anymore. We're not going to waste any more time. Uh, what we're going to do is. We're going to put together a handbook and we're going to compile the uh, stories of these other communities and copy their ballot language and talk about the different issues and educate all of our municipal members uh, so that if they want to do it, they will do it. And and that's basically that shift in strategy is what helped promote not just municipal opt outs, but counties. Uh, We have school districts who have voted to opt out. Um, so they could make better use of their excess fiber capacity. It really has turned into something that we didn't expect um, in a good way and probably that the industry didn't expect in a way <laughs> yeah. that they would say is, is not what they had in mind.
2: I think it's worth reiterating, though, that that's because you were able to strip out the additional limitations um, that that would have... Um, further handicapped and prevented good projects from moving forward after they had a, a public authorization, because I don't I don't want people to walk away from this and think, oh well, as long as there's a referendum, that's fine. Um, in part because I don't think people understand. I mean, you know, Fort Collins looked at almost a million dollars of opposition from um, uh, the the Cable Association and the Chamber of Commerce, um, and. Frankly, our analysis of it suggested that uh, even without having the level of success that Longmonts had, uh, Comcast and CenturyLink will lose well over a million dollars per year because of competition in the market, and so they would have been smart to spend five million dollars, ten million dollars. You know, like I mean, I don't know. At a certain point, you can be on a, on an issue so unpopular that money won't make a difference. But frankly. I can imagine that they could get more aggressive still to try to swing referendums, and it will require an an engaged citizenry to oppose. So I don't want to be very cavalier about it. Things can change and they can change back. I'm
0: glad you brought up Fort Collins because we went through this period of time post Longmont where the industry basically didn't challenge any of these. And it wasn't just the small communities, but some of the suburban communities like my city where I live in, Arvada. Uh, when we did our opt-out election, our population was over 100,000 at that point, no opposition. Fort Collins, I think, was different because uh, similar to Longmont, they have an electric utility, they have infrastructure already in place, and the industry saw that as a place where they could lose a huge market share. So after going years of not seeing the industry fight these, we there was the huge fight in Fort Collins, massive amounts of money, and um, right. the city prevailed. I don't know that there are too many big markets like that that are left in the city. There's at least one in which you're going to have a vote. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not too concerned about it. I, I do think if one of our largest cities decided to get into the business at some point and went to a vote, there would be a, uh, there would be a fight, but I'm not sure what the likelihood of that, uh, that really is. But the point you're making, Chris is, that is a good point. People should not get the impression that we like this bill. We hate this bill. Um, we are local government people. We believe in local control. We believe that local communities ought to be in charge of their own destiny. And thank you very much general assembly, but we don't need your help to tell us what we can't do because you want to protect our citizens from a city council making a bad mistake. You don't do that in other areas. Um, You shouldn't do it in this area. What you're really doing is protecting one industry is creating a special set of rules to favor one industry over all the other industries in the state. And it's wrong. Um, Any kind of state preemption of local authority in that context is wrong. So we don't have a good bill. We have a bad. I have described our bill compared to some of the other bills around the country that have these really bad things in it. I, I, I wouldn't call Senate Bill 152 a good bill. I would say compared to all the other municipal broadband restrictions around the country, Senate Bill 152 sucks the least. There you go, Chris. It sucks the least.
2: (laughs) I like that. And I think, I mean, one of the things that that you noted uh, was that um, there's no wiggle room. If a a city wants to do just about anything, they have to opt out. And I think that's what's driving a a conversation in Denver. And that's what my my comment a few uh, a minute ago was, um, is that we may see a vote in Denver. And I'm very curious to see how that goes, because... I would not expect Denver to have a plan to build a Longmont-style network. Um, but at the same time, if they want to just start trying to connect low-income households and public housing and things like that, mm-hmm. they may have to get an authorization.
0: Right. And that's that's um, where I think you, you see how uh, these elections are going to play out in many communities that don't want to be service providers, don't want to create citywide broadband networks. But as you say, maybe they have excess capacity and they can help provide additional service in a low-income area um, or an area where maybe there is decent broadband from the private sector, but the prices just um, are, are make it unaffordable. You may have communities that um, have an economic development opportunity with an area that is um, under redevelopment, but there's a lot of costs involved in cleaning up the air hazardous materials and building the new infrastructure and creating a new development and maybe one way to incent that is to provide access to city fiber so that there'll be gigabit connectivity at every structure in the new development so there are these pieces of communities and um, i haven't been involved in the specifics of what why denver is looking at this but i would suspect that those kind of opportunities are the kinds of things that denver's saying maybe we ought to have the flexibility to address those and because of this bill they can't address it unless they go to a citywide vote and should there be an election in Denver, um, and I don't think one is definitely on the horizon right now, but I'm not kind of privy to their internal discussions. Um, it'll be very, very interesting to watch how the industry responds to
2: that. So, Jeff, any concluding comments as we wrap up?
3: Well, I, this is a bit out of order, Chris, but I wanted to mention, it. Can't alluded earlier to the fact that we, the government doesn't raise taxes in Colorado. The voters have to vote to raise taxes. And it's the same thing with debt. We don't issue debt in Colorado after the Tabor Amendment, either revenue debt or general obligation debt, without a vote of the voters. And we knew this at the time that we were working on Senate Bill 152. And one of the reasons we the election option was attractive to us is we figured that in a lot of cases, the entity would be having to go to the voters anyway under the Tabor amendment in order to get debt for this project. And if we could get rid of this ridiculous provision that our debt had to be served only from the proceeds of the project as we talked about earlier, um, we'd be in business. And that's what ended up happening. Anyway, I guess my final comment is I'm, I, I, I've been surprised uh, by how 152 has developed over the years because I spent a lot of time fighting it, hating it, just like we all hate it. But we've worked around it in many ways, and that's the, good, the, good, the nugget of good news here.
2: Any concluding thoughts, Ken? I have been um, pleasantly
0: surprised to see how uh, the long-term reaction uh, in the local government community to Senate Bill 152 has played out. Uh, I think in those communities that have not only opted out, um, but have then taken steps to try to approve broadband in their communities. Um, There have been more success stories than there have been failures. And there has actually been some recognition by the state that the state needs to play a more active role in um, addressing gaps in broadband coverage, um, helping rural areas, um, closing the homework gap. We have a long way to go still. But I think some of the movement that we're seeing today, and, and certainly just the recognition by local officials if I think back to the time when I was mayor in two thousand and five and six, if you asked any mayor in the state what are the top three issues in your community telecommunications was not one of them um, except for a handful today if you ask yeah. any mayor in Colorado or any county commissioner in Colorado council member board of trustee member what are your top three issues a lot of them are going to have broadband connectivity uh, somewhere on their list so Uh, The way that we have evolved with local government broadband projects after Senate Bill 152, um, I think has helped uh, create not just better broadband in some communities, but uh, far better awareness of what is possible. And it has caused um, a lot of communities to look at, you know, should we be looking at this in our community and what would work best for us? And, And that's a good thing.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you both for taking this time and also spending your careers working for local communities. Much appreciated. Well, thanks, thank for you, the and thanks for having us.
1: That was Christopher talking with Ken Fellman and Jeff Wilson. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at MediaNetworks.org slash Broadband Bits. Email us at podcast at MediaNetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community nets. Follow MeanyNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Networks. Subscribe to this and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Compicing for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arna Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 415 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.